So um, for the rest of us, uh, we are going to be looking at the book of 2 John today. So if you go ahead and turn to that. So I'm excited to preach this summer as I was thinking about what to preach um, to you all as we study the Word of God together. Um, I thought about all of these small books. You know, we believe as Christians that all the scriptures God breathed and it is useful for making the man of God complete for every good work. Uh, and that includes the small books. And often, though, these books are the ones that as we're doing our Bible reading plan that we love to go through because we can just knock off two or three in a day. And it feels really great to just knock them all off. But sometimes we don't pay much attention right? Just intuitively, we think, oh, it's just a short book. There's not much there. But I think if we slow down and look deeply, we'll actually see that within these little books, there's actually a lot, a lot of truth that is important for us and greatly changes the way we are to live as Christians. Um, but before we dive in, I just want you to consider this question, because as I was studying and preparing this sermon over the last couple weeks, one question came to mind, and we're going to get to it, but not until the end, and that, and that is this. Is it ever the case that in order to love someone well, that we actually have to refuse hospitality to them? Now, I know some of you might be saying, oh, that sounds kind of nice. You mean I don't have to welcome them in? I can just relax in my home and not bring food? No, 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 no. Is it, is it the best way to love others, right? Is it the best way to love others? Is it true that that might be mean withholding hospitality? And if so, in what situation would that be? All right. I want you to think about that as we read through this book and we, we study it together. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. So 2 John, starting in verse 1, says this. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to the commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Father, and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister. Father, I pray as we look closely at the word of God before us that we would take it to heart as followers of Jesus, that it would 
that we would submit to your word and be obedient to it so that you may transform us to be more and more like Jesus and so that you may, we may be effective for your work of reaching the world around us. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Congratulations. All of you have read through one whole book of the Bible. I don't know where you are in your Bible reading plan, but, you know, one more off the list, one more step closer to finishing for this year, right? Um, but as we take a look at the book of 2 John together, I just want to draw out many of the details. So this letter, uh, like many of the letters that we have in the New Testament, kind of follow a certain structure, and that is that the author, whether it's Paul or in this case John or Peter, spends a lot of time talking about theology and doctrine, or if you haven't grown up in church, just truth, what we believe to be true. And they spend a lot of time laboring it on that. And then as they reach the end, that truth is a foundation for, okay, now that you know this, this is what you do with that truth. And this is how you live it out. And that is no less true for this very small book. So let's just pay close attention uh, to what John is saying in the first half of this paragraph. So uh, first off, I just want to point out the elder to the elect lady and her children. So we know that John is writing this book. We know this because we compare his other letters, and they're all very similar. In fact, I encourage you, since it's such a small book, read through 1 John this week. or read through the ending, uh, specifically chapter 16, I believe it is, of the Gospel of John, and you will see word-for-word similarities. As you read it, it's supposed to draw your attention to this other letter, and it's supposed to draw your attention to the end of the Gospel of John, drawing you to that story of right before Jesus dies, right? Um, but uh, even though he is an apostle, notice how he refers to himself as just an elder, right? Just an elder, which is a position of authority, but he's not claiming he's speaking out of some sort of He's not using the apostolic title here, right? He's greeting them as just an elder. And then he is talking to the elect lady and her children. Now, uh, there's a couple disagreements on this, but for the most part, people believe that this is, we're writing to another church. And so the elect lady is that local church, and her children are the members of that church. And part of this is because how it ends is the children of your elect sister greet. So John, as an elder at this sister church, is greeting this other church and writing to them about a specific problem that they are having. And how does he begin this letter? Well, notice something interesting here. So, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. In other words, John loves this other church, but he loves them in truth. And not only that, but all who know the truth love this church. Why? Why do they love them? Well, it continues in verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So at the center of Christianity, we believe a claim about truth. In fact, so much so that often Jesus himself is referred to as the way and the truth, right? At the center of Christianity is a truth claim. And we live within that truth, right? And, and because of that, because of the truth that Jesus teaches us and brings to us, we are able to love. And that is the basis for how John and all who know the truth, loving the sister church. And so right at the very beginning, John is tying truth 
and love together in a way that makes them unseparated. You cannot have true love without truth. You cannot have truth without it being loving. There's a claim here, but it goes on and it, it, it makes this uh, connection even clearer as we keep reading. So grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in what? Notice, in truth and love. In other words, we as Christians have grace and we have mercy and we have peace from God the Father and from Jesus. Why? Because we have it in both truth and in love. Right? John is kind of laboring this point, this connection between truth and love and how out of those we have these blessings as Christians. Now he goes on further and he commends this church because, in verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. And so we see two things there. One is not everyone is walking in the truth, just some. And so right now we're beginning to see a hint that there is a problem that John is addressing in his church. But nonetheless, he still rejoices for them because some are walking in the truth. And that's worthy of celebrating. Yes, there's going to have to be a problem that is addressed. But there are some that are still walking in the truth. And that is a great thing that he celebrates. Right? And, and they were walking in the truth just as they were commanded by the Father to do so. And then he starts to apply it a little bit. But it's still... Still some teaching, still some theology here. He goes in verse 5. And now I ask you, dear lady, and then he pauses, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment. And so what, what John is about to ask is he is about to ask this church to follow a commandment. right? But he, he says it's not a new commandment, though. Uh, in fact, it's one that we have had from the beginning. Now, what is that commandment? And notice, by the way, it is singular. John is about to ask them to what? He's about to ask them to follow a commandment, but not a new one, one that we've had from the beginning, and that commandment is singular. And what is that commandment? Well, it says that we love one another. Now, if you have been reading John 16, this will sound familiar to you. In fact, Jesus says... Right on the night before he's crucified, an interesting thing where he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. So when Jesus is giving it, it is new, which means what? It means the beginning John is referring to is this beginning of Christianity. In other words, Jesus' death as a substitution for our sins and resurrection in order to give us new eternal life in Christ Jesus. That is the beginning that he's referring to that all Christians go back to. In the very beginning of Christianity, we have had this one commandment, and that is to love one another. All right. So, once again, we have truth, and we have love, and, J and John is calling upon them to walk in both truth and in love. But it goes further, because one of the interesting things we have to ask, right, as I... If, you, if you've ever uh, seen a video where people go around asking people on the street a question, I would encourage you, some of you, to look up uh, uh, maybe a video on where they go around and ask people what love is. Because you would think, okay, that's, that's, everyone knows what love is, right? Well, no one seems to be able to agree on it. Everyone has a different definition of love, and it's very wide. And so it would be very nice if after saying, okay, that you need to love one another, you're going to say, 
what love is. And this is one of those rare moments in the Bible after saying a term, it actually gives a definition. Look, and what is love? He asks a question for us and immediately answers it. And this is where I think things get interesting. So, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Plural this time. What is it saying here? What it's saying here, and, and what is the, and if you look in John 16, there's this back and forth between singular commandment and commandments. And what Jesus is doing here, and what John is repeating of Jesus' teaching is this that in order to love, you have to obey God's commandments. And in order to obey God's commandments, you have to love, they're inseparable. In fact, it makes it more clear because he keeps going. He says, after he says to walk according to the commandments, he then explains what the commandments are. And it says this, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning. Where in this book does it talk about from the beginning? Oh, back up. All the way right here in verse 5, it says, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. In other words, John is saying, what I'm asking you to do is love one another. How do you love one another? You obey the commandments. How do you obey the commandment? You love one another. Now, this seems circular, but it's actually catching on to something that all fallen human beings tend to do. And that is separating love from truth and obedience. Think about it in, in this way. There tends to be two extremes that we fall into as followers of Jesus. One is that we are all about holiness and obeying the commandments of God, and we're all about other people doing the same thing, and if they don't, there's no grace for them and shame on them, and we're just harsh person who is hard to get along with, but we obey the Bible. And what John is saying here is, no, you don't. In fact, you disobey the very heart of the Bible because you don't love. Or the other extreme where we say we love, we love, we just accept people as they are, right? Who cares what they're, if they're falling into sin? We don't want to say anything because that's mean. And what John is saying here is that although you claim to be loved, you hate them because you refuse to tell them they're going into destruction. In other words, in the Bible, you cannot separate truth from love, obeying the commandments of God from love. They're all together. Right, and, and, and it's easy to think of two different types of people, right? The very harsh person who's unloving and unkind. They're all about the truth, right? They're all about the truth and what obedience to God means. And the other person who's just really kind and gentle and loving, but they're not really firm about what the truth of God teaches. But the actual sad truth is that us, all of us, on our best days are both of I mean, think about it. Think about the people that you love and have a good relationship with who you've held back from telling them that they're disobeying God because you didn't want to hurt their relationship. Even though you knew that telling them that could save them so much pain and suffering and heartache as they rushed headfirst into destruction and harming themselves. While at the same time, people that you might not be as friendly to, you have no problem Speaking the truth, right? You know, we all speak the truth in love, even if it's not very loving. 
right, to those who aren't as close to us, those we don't care as much how they feel about us. And the same person, we struggle with both of the extremes. And what John is telling them to do here is that you must love, and in order to love, you must walk in the truth and obey the commandments, but in order to walk in the truth and obey the commandments, you must love. You can't separate these things. And I think we all, when we think about it, have seen this in our own lives at different areas and in different ways. But this is the foundation for what he calls them to do next. This is the teaching, the doctrine, the theology, and now he's going to apply it directly to their problem. So what is going on in this church that John is trying to address? Well, let's keep reading. And, and notice that verse 7 begins with 4. So everything is written up to this point is to help this church for this problem he's about to address. So they need to understand that you must walk in truth and love and obedience, that you cannot separate any of those things, but altogether, why? Because, as it says in verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world that do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So what is going on here? What is going on is there are teachers going out and they're teaching an anti-gospel. Now, you might ask here, I never heard the word gospel in here. What are you talking about, Josh? Well, look closely at what the claim these teachers are talking about. They're specifically teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Now, what is the gospel in its most simple form? The gospel is that, that the Son of God became a human being and he lived a perfect life that we could never live and he took on our sin in our place and gave us his righteousness and therefore took on the wrath and punishment of God and died so that we might be forgiven of sins and then rose again so that we might have a new life. Now, if they are teaching Jesus didn't come in the flesh, what is the problem? Well, the problem is that means that Jesus didn't become a human being. Jesus didn't actually suffer and he didn't actually die and the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against our sin, is not satisfied. In other words, there is no gospel here. And so these teachers are coming in and they're teaching this new teaching. And if, if we keep reading further, we see some of their motivation. As, uh, as John warns them that uh, who, anyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. In other words, these people... Um, who are teaching this, are teaching it as if they are enlightened, that you simple Christians, you believe this, this, this crude, ignorant gospel, but I have something much more enlightened and much better for you. Jesus, Jesus is God. He didn't become a human being. That's impossible. And then so teaching it in a way that is attractive to those of us who like to be considered enlightened and intelligent and not ignorant, appealing to our sinful side of us, our fallen side of us, they're actually pulling us away from the good news of the gospel and leaving us in this hope, hopeless place, right? And so John is warning them, do not accept that. That's why he says in verse 8, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. He's warning them to not turn away from the simple teachings of the gospel. Now, in this specific context, that meant that there were teachers who were teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. But in our day, the arguments, honestly, they don't get all that creative. They repeat over and over, but I'm sure you've heard many of them in our day. 
the, the idea here that they're teaching is that Jesus wasn't really fully human. In our day, the, the bigger argument is Jesus wasn't really God. He was just a good guy, right? He was just a really good human being. And you, if you try hard enough, you can be just like Jesus. That's not good news. I don't want to try my whole life striving to be just a little bit more like Jesus and have the reward because if you're reading the gospel and Jesus is not God, the reward is to be murdered for it. That's not good news. It's only good news if Jesus is both fully human and fully God. Or there's others today who look at the gospel and they consider it crude, barbaric, and ignorant. They will say, how can you believe in this abusive, godly father figure who dumps all of his wrath out on to his son? Now, people who tell you this, by the way, um, I try to give people I disagree with as much um, grace as possible. The thing is, everyone I've heard say this are um, highly educated, and they know and have been taught the doctrine of the Trinity. And so there's no actual excuse to teach this because the Bible doesn't teach that the Father's wrath is poured out on the Son. No, it teaches that the wrath of God, the justified wrath of God, the justified wrath of the Father, justified wrath of the Son, the justified wrath of the Spirit, is poured out on the Son. In other words, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, Jesus, became a human being to take that wrath upon himself in our place. Or some may just, just be appalled at the idea that God could be wrathful at all. They underplay our sin, and, the, and they underplay the importance of the love of God. But here's the thing. Think about someone you love, your wife, your child, your family, someone you love deeply. And imagine them being mistreated. What is your response? What is your emotion? It is justified wrath. Now imagine for a second the all-loving God who loves far more than we could ever even imagine. And now imagine all of the hurt and pain and violence that you have thought and spoken and acted upon the people God loves your entire life. You see, the wrath of God is the only loving response that God can have. And yet, because the people who his wrath was directed towards, he loved, he instead stepped in and took it upon himself. The Son of God became a human being and took the wrath of God for our sake. That is the gospel. And any one of these teachings, and, and they accuse the gospel and those who believe it as being ignorant or barbaric or stupid, and that's not new. That's been happening since the very beginning. And so what does John urge this church to do? And what would he urge us to do in the midst of a culture that constantly looks at the gospel and sees it as dumb, or barbaric, or hateful, or petty? What would he have us to do? Well, let's keep reading. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for but may win a full reward. In other words, he urges you to hold on and to cling to the truth of the simple gospel. But it's not just for goodness sake. Sometimes we view this, this virtue and, uh, as if doing the right thing for the sake of just doing the right thing as like the ultimate form of good. And maybe that is true, and maybe that is a good idea, but it's not a Christian idea. Actually, the beautiful thing about the Bible is that the reason we're urged to do the right thing, the reason we're urged to 
Cling to the gospel despite all the hardship you may face for clinging to it and not compromising. It's because the reward that's coming is far superior than anything you have to suffer now. One of my favorite verses comes from Romans where it says that like all this pain and suffering that you have to go to is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. It's not downplaying any suffering we go through now. Instead, it's just saying the glory that's coming is so far superior than anything you could ever hope or imagine. So don't give up now. Don't give up some don't give up the greatest thing possible for something lesser now. I'm reminded of the that math equation that we're all told to understand the importance of compound interest, right? Like, would you rather take a million dollars today or one cent now that doubles every day for 30 days, right? And and the I didn't do the math myself, so I hope I'm not wrong. But I'm pretty sure at the end of it, had you taken the one cents in the beginning that doubles every day, you walk away with over $5 million, right? And that is, to a smaller scale, what is being talked about here. In other words, don't give up this ultimate good that is coming for just being accepted here and now. You want to be viewed as enlightened or intelligent, not ignorant or hateful or spiteful. I get that. But if you, what you're getting, what is coming, the reward is so full of glory and beauty and hope and peace. You can endure this for the moment. It is temporary. And compared to what you're getting, do not give it up. Watch yourself so that you do not lose your full reward. And so this is what, what John is saying so far. Walk in truth and love. By clinging to the gospel. But that's not all his teaching, right? In fact, it continues on here, and this is where things I, I found fascinating. So looking at verse 10, it says this. So if, what are you supposed to do about those who bring this false teaching? It says this. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, that is the true gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now, before we dive into this further, I want to give you context. Yes, just alone, I think we'll understand what it's teaching, but I think you will understand it with more weight if you understand something about the culture he is writing in. You see, there are certain Christian virtues that the ancient world at the time viewed as kind of vices. For instance, Christianity viewed humility as a virtue, but the Roman world viewed humility as a vice, and they looked at Christians celebrating humility as these immoral people. But there's other Christian virtues that were universal. And one of the most celebrated virtues in the ancient world is hospitality. In other words, when you have someone come, you give them a warm welcome and a greeting. You welcome into your home. You treat them as a guest. And they have to, in hospitality as well, treat the person who gives them a guest in a hospitable way. To break that hospitable code is one of the worst sins of the time. And in fact, it wasn't just a universal virtue, it was also a Christian virtue. If you look at the qualifications for elders, these qualifications are basically saying, hey, this is what all Christians should aspire to be, but elders must prove to have these virtues before they are trusted with any sort of leadership or authority. They must prove to be trustworthy first. And one of those things is that he must be hospitable. In other words, if a man is not hospitable, he is not a trustworthy enough man to entrust with any sort of authority 
our leadership. He needs to grow. He needs to mature. He needs to repent. Right? Hospitality is not optional as Christians. And yet, what does it say here? If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. There's a truth here that we need to hear in our time, and that is this. Um, that sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a person, if that person is heading headlong into their own destruction, that love will sometimes feel like cruelty. I'm reminded of a story from the Odyssey. Uh, uh, so this is just a, a, I don't know how many of you know your Greek mythology, but in the Odyssey, um, you have Odysseus returning home. And at one part, as he's returning home and sailing, they pass by these sirens. And if anyone hears the sound of the siren, they will cast themselves off the boat to their own death. And so to avoid that, they put wax in their ears and tie themselves to the mast. And I've seen this played out in many different movies and shows. And inevitably what happens is someone loses the wax and they try to run off of the boat and everyone holds them back. And that person who hears the siren sound views everyone else holding them back from this great opportunity of joy and pleasure as cruel. Why would someone hold me back from this? And the truth is that sometimes to the person heading headfirst into destruction, love can feel like cruelty. And so if we look at this, these people who are bringing in this teaching, this teaching that condemns not only them, but any who believe it, into an eternity of suffering and separation from God. The only loving thing to do is say, I cannot support you in this destruction. Because if you do, then not only do you just show them hospitality, but instead what you're doing is you, as it says in verse 11, Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. This is one of the hard things to hear because, because sometimes love can look like a rebuke. Sometimes love can look like withholding greeting and welcome and hospitality. Why? Because to give it is to encourage and support destruction. And in fact, it is not loving in that moment, but it is the most hateful thing you can do to support a false gospel that leads people astray. And I know you can all think of in your own lives this tension you have. How do I show someone that I love them and because I love them, I disagree with everything they are doing and everything they have made their life out to be at this moment? I know each of you have struggled with this. It's, it's really easy this month, I'm sure you know, to pick the big topic, political issues. But let's deal with this more personally for a second. How many of you have had loved ones who you know are making decisions that will only lead to their pain? They will only lead to sorrow and heartache and hurting not only them, but everyone around them. And if you don't fully get on board and seem to support them a thousand percent, then you hate them and you reject them, right? And we know this truth, right? Because if you ever have loved someone who is an addict, 
You don't support their addiction, right? That's not loving. That's enablement. And yet sometimes with these other sins, we forget that. Sometimes when a person is making these sinful choices that rebel against God, we feel like, oh, I have to feel, I have to come along and support them because if I don't, they will think that I hate them. But what this book is teaching us here, what John, what the Holy Spirit through John is teaching us is that you cannot separate love from truth and obedience. That to do so is a lie. That to support someone in their self-destruction as they rebel against the gospel is actually hatred. But that doesn't give you just the excuse to, if someone is going into sin, to just write them off and to treat them rudely, right? Yes, it may call for taking harsh steps that look like hate, such as refusing to even give a greeting to someone preaching a false gospel. But you should love them so overwhelmingly that when you do that, it should be a surprise. How can this person who has loved me so well for so long now not give me greetings, not show me hospitality? It should serve as a wake-up, whether they hear it or not. It should serve as a wake-up to them and those who are watching. This is not a hateful, spiteful person. In fact, they, they are a loving person because they're a follower of Jesus, and he has made them so. And yet, in this moment, they are withholding their hospitality. Why? Because to give it would be to support their evil. Now, this is one of the hard truths, and it's, it's one of those interesting things that John spends so much time in the beginning making sure they understand that a Christian must walk in love. But in this case, walking in love is to make that hard choice to withhold hospitality to those who preach against the gospel. And so what I want to encourage you on a practical level this week is, is two things. One is, are there people in your life who you have enabled their sin and they walk away with this false sense that you support their sin? Not that you support them, but that you support their self-destruction. And in which case, how do you remedy that situation? How do you actually love them? On the other hand, if you're someone who more in your relationship is one who speaks the hard truth all the time, is there someone in your life who you've spoken the hard truth, but not in a loving way? In other words, didn't actually speak the truth because it was without grace. How do you remedy that situation with them? How do you make it right? How do you go by and say, I actually love you, and I'm sorry for how I treated you. I still do not support your decisions and your sin and your rebellion, but you I love. And I pray that you can see that this leads to your destruction so that you can turn and finally find healing and peace. Right. So with that, I want to pray. Um, and then invite our, our band up to close us out in worship through singing. So, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom and courage to walk in truth and love and obedience. That as Christians, although it is difficult that we hold that tension and that we do not compromise, but instead we cling to the gospel and we reject all of its counterfeiters. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.